many of you I have known for such a long time have come to many of these retreats, which just goes to prove what a bad teacher I am. (laughs) If I was any good, you'd all be enlightened by now and you wouldn't need to come here anymore. (laughs) But nevertheless, it's good to see you. And especially at this particular time, we've used to do this quite often, just at the end of our range retreat, just before our Katina ceremony, to put aside that one week, you know, for those who are coming from Singapore, uh, to do this uh, seven, eight, nine, whatever day retreat it is. So again, welcome everybody. The first night here, many of you, even though you've been here many times before, will be just settling in, uh, making sure that you have got all your rooms nice and comfortable which is wonderful. But when you have those rooms, uh, we made this place many years ago, especially so everybody could have their own room and their own ensuite. Apparently this year it still was overbooked. Was that the case still? Uh, Not anymore, I don't think so. So we have just enough people. You kicked some people out? Uh, They dropped out. They dropped out, okay. From the aircraft? Mid-flight. <laughs> okay, that's excellent. I'm very happy to see that this is not overbooked. And the reason for that is, one of the wonderful things about Jana Grove is that everybody has their own room. And when you have your own room, every room has its own ensuite. And it's you know, one of the most comfortable retreat centers you can actually see in the world. And even though you have your own room and ensuite, there is still in every cottage, six people, there is a place you can make yourself a cup of tea in the morning or coffee, whatever you like. But please be careful if you can't. They can't do that anymore. Yeah. Excellent. What about me when I come and stay in here? Excellent. That's much better because many times when you're in your room and you start using the kettle in the common area, many times people complain in the middle of the night. They hear some. as they're stirring up their coffee. And of course, that's quite ordinary for you, but what it does to other people who are just about to get enlightened, it just stops their penetration into the Dharma, which which means that you make some very bad karma. So it's nice that you have that. So everybody, if they want a cup of tea or coffee, they can come down... Bottom, excellent. It's the same with the other thing about it, we try and keep it as quiet as possible. We do have what we call on retreats a noble silence. You know what that noble silence means? How long ago were you on my last retreat? What does noble silence mean? <laughs> you understand, no bells. In other words, we don't ring a bell to wake you up in the morning. We don't ring a bell to tell you what time breakfast is. You don't ring a bell to tell you what time lunch is. I guarantee when it's lunchtime, you will know. (laughs) If you don't believe me, for those of you who have visited Bodhinyana Monastery on the other side of the road, you see there there's parrots, and magpies and kookaburras, they know exactly when lunch is. And if you go there in the afternoon, you hardly see them at all. So they're smart. (laughs) And I've never seen a parrot or a kookaburra with a watch or a mobile phone trying to check out the time. So they know. So try and keep it natural. But also, I was saying this to somebody just recently, 
that sometimes when you are meditating, sometimes you feel very peaceful and calm. And if you're feeling very peaceful and calm, then that's wonderful, just carry on meditating. And don't worry about what time it is. When I first started teaching retreats, I started doing what other people do, which is say, this is the schedule, you get up at this time, and I ring the bell, and then you start walking, and I ring the bell, and then you start sort of sitting meditation, you ring a bell, and then you go to the toilet, but please not all at the same time, and ring another bell, and you have to go. (laughs) What happens is that people just get kind of afraid. One thing I noticed, that even though people were having some nice meditation in the evening, that they got up and went to sleep, not because they needed to go to sleep, they went to sleep because they thought if they don't go to sleep now, then they won't get enough sleep in the middle of in the night time. And when they wake up in the morning, if they do wake up, they'll be tired and sleepy. And it'd be much better. And I tried this and it was far more successful that when people at night time in the evening, if you still feel that you need to or you can meditate and it's beneficial for you, carry on meditating. Don't be a prisoner of time. And the same in the morning. And if you find that you've been meditating till midnight or something, and then in the morning you don't have to get up for the morning chanting. You don't have to get up for anything. You can even miss breakfast if you're courageous enough. (laughs) You can have some more for lunch. So whatever it is, we try and keep things much more natural. And I say this story, most retreats, years ago when I gave a retreat over in Sydney. And there was this one lady, she came, arrived in the middle of the night on Friday, Saturday morning. And the reason why she arrived late was because she was an executive in some big business over in Sydney. And she had to tie up all the loose ends and then get on the aircraft and fly over here. So she arrived there in the middle of the night. And so in the, she missed the, the briefing in the morning, oh, the briefing in the evening on Friday. So I just gave her a special briefing on Saturday morning. And I, after breakfast, I said, listen, it's so obvious you're so tired. You've been working really hard. You know, can you please follow my advice on this retreat? I want you for the first couple of days after breakfast to go back to your room and go to bed and have a sleep and get up for lunch. And after lunch, go to bed again and have another nap. And when you've caught up with your sleep, then you can come and meditate if you wish. Then you get the talk in the evening. And that's what she did. When I asked her how it was going, she said because in those retreat centres the people had to stay in dormitories, so three or four people to each room. And they said, how is it going? And he said, Achan Brahm, all the other people I share the room with, we don't talk together, but they look at me and I feel just so much hatred coming towards me. They get up early and I'm still sleeping. They have their breakfast and they go to meditate and I go back to bed. And they, obviously they feel that I'm just wasting my time. And I said to her, I've talked to some of those uh, people, they're not angry at you, they're jealous. They wish they could do that because they're exhausted too from a busy lifestyle. And it's the same with many of you. When I came in here this evening, I saw the the bus go out of China Grove. Many of you have just arrived. And as you have just arrived, you know, you must be quite exhausted and tired. That's nature. 
It's not something you can deny and think doesn't exist. What that means is the first night here, you will be tired. I don't want to go on for too long. You have a briefing afterwards. But also, the first morning, don't just set your alarm clock to get up for the morning chanting or the meditation. Please have a sleep in, if you wish. And I say that because part of our meditation teachings is kindfulness. You know, I coined that term. You know why we mention stress that word? Actually, I shouldn't say stress. We emphasize that word. (laughs) The kindfulness. Because if you're aware but don't practice kindfulness, don't practice a kindness, what's the purpose of knowing what's going on and denying the reality of your body and your mind? So please, for the first couple of days, catch up on your sleep and to see if you can meditate as much as you can, but don't force it. I've told this to many people during the uh, three-month Rains meditation retreat, something which I do myself. Sometimes I ask myself, body, what do you need? Mind, what do you need? Those two questions. It's a very practical way of developing mindfulness, awareness of your, the needs, not the wants, but the needs of your body and your mind. And because I've been doing this for so many years now, that I can understand what my mind feels, what my body needs. And sometimes I've experimented with that. Sometimes, I was mentioning this to many monks during the range retreat. Sometimes I ask my body, what do you need? We just finished the breakfast and I go back to my room to meditate. I'm not actually the room, I live in a cave. And ask, mind, what do you need? Body, what do you need? And a few times that body has said, I need to stretch out and rest. And I argue with my body. I said, look, you just had a rest. You had a good night's sleep. But it says, no, I need to rest. And often I followed that advice. I know it's the right advice because as soon as my head hits the pillow, I just become unconscious. I go to sleep almost straight away. Half an hour, 45 minutes, then I wake up and I feel just so strong and alert. It's one of the reasons you can ask many of the the monks who know me. That's one of the reasons even Ayachanda, she knows me, just how I am a healthy monk. Don't tend to get sick, don't tend to get COVID or any of these other diseases. Why? And sometimes my theory, it's only a theory, is that sometimes you're about to get sick and the bug starts to get into you. And because I ask my body, what do you need? Sometimes the body responds. Need a rest. I take a rest, only about 45 minutes, and the body has a chance to heal itself. And I don't care about what time of day or night that is. And the opposite is also true. Sometimes in the middle of the night, you wake up, I think this morning, you woke up at one o'clock in the morning, and I thought to myself, it's a bit early to get up and meditate, but why not? You ask your mind, you ask your body, what do you need? They said, I had enough sleep. So you do some meditation. And that's one of the loveliest times to meditate in the middle of the night if your body and mind agrees to it. That's why I call it kindfulness. You're kind to your mind and kind to your body. So if that's what the body needs, that's what you give it. You work with your body and mind. 
the kindfulness means that you are a friend to your body and a friend to your mind. You're not trying to train it and make it like this or make it like that. Instead, you're understanding it and working with it. And then you find you know, your body and mind, you're healthy, and also uh, you're not tired. You don't end up um, snoring. And thank you, whoever it was, when I came here this evening, was snoring loudly, because that reminded me to emphasize this teaching. <laughs> Please, if you're tired, what should you do? What's the first thing you should you do to overcome sloth and torpor? Yeah, and we don't want to go sleep here. That's why you've got your own rooms for. So you can go to sleep any old time of the day or night and get your, your energy coming up again. So please try and... This is not just for you, it's just for others as well. So you can be a calm, quiet meditator on this retreat. The other thing I was going to say also, when you're in your rooms and even here, please learn how to close doors quietly and to walk quietly. And when you come in here, open the doors quietly and sit down quietly. You are highly educated people. So even low educated burglars can come in and out quietly. So how come that you keep making so much noise? <laughs> Look, sometimes people want to find, make sure they get a good job in their life. I don't know how the economy is going in Singapore, but I do know there is always a place for employment as a spy. So this is like spy training here. Is that a good idea? So you can go into a room, no one hears you coming. You can go out and no one hears you going. Could you do that? Really? <laughs> you wouldn't sneeze or trip, bang the door? So please try if you can. Uh, just closing the doors quietly. It just takes a little bit more mindfulness, a little bit more time. And sometimes, once I heard a story about one of the monks in UK, their sister, it's a weird story but it's true, their sister retired from work and even the monk didn't really know what she did in London she would go there on the train every morning and sometimes had to go to conferences overseas. It wasn't conferences overseas. This girl, no exaggeration, was working for MI6. She had this amazing memory. So she could go and over into usually Eastern Europe, get some secret documents, just read it and return it. And then when she went back to London, she could just duplicate it, 100% accuracy. She had to learn how to open doors quietly and move in and out quietly, so can't you? You know, when I said that to, uh, to people in Perth, then they started saying, ah... Now I know what you do when you go overseas, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> Where all these donations come from to build Jhana Grove. This would be a very good cover as a spy, being a nun or, <laughs> or a monk. You would never guess, would you? And sometimes I even took that further, if you don't mind silly sense of humour. I said, look, see this tummy over here. What do you think this really is? It's not fat. 
This is all my utility belts underneath the robe. <laughs> my secret equipment. <laughs> you laughing? Who knows? <laughs> no, but anyhow, just learning how to be calm and quiet just takes that little bit more mindfulness. And I think you know what it means when somebody bangs your, the door in your cottage and disturbs you, so please be extra quiet on this retreat. It also means that please don't talk too much, because that also disturbs people. So usually the last day you can start talking to each other, and people don't miss it. On these retreats sometimes I make it very strict, so please no one talking. If you see someone talking, you give them the one finger sign. You know what the one finger sign is? That's the one finger sign, not the other one finger sign, that's rude. (laughs) To remind them we're trying to keep quiet. And when I've done that very strictly many times, that at the last day of the retreat, I usually say to people, okay, now you don't need to keep that noble silence anymore. You can start speaking. And this has happened every time. When people have freedom to speak, to say hello to one another, they shared even a cottage with, they don't want to speak at all. And it's an interesting phenomenon. The reason is because The silence is much more beautiful than all the speaking. You've got used to speaking, used to all the chatter, used to all the noise. Even on the aircraft, I don't know if you watched a movie or something, but it's noise, noise, noise. It's an interesting phenomenon that I said that to, again, one of the monks recently, that many, many, many years ago, I forget exactly when it was, but I was going from one place to another. And those were the days where the screens actually came down from the, the, uh, the ceiling. And when they came down, they came down almost right in front of me. And so there was a movie on. Am I supposed to watch movies? I watched that movie. It was fascinating because I never had any earphones. I couldn't hear anything. I just watched. And I remember that movie because I was laughing my head off all the time. It was a comedy. At least that's what I thought. The name of the movie was Armageddon. (laughs) Next time you want a bit of interesting entertainment, just watch the movie on the aircraft, but don't have the headphones. And it's totally ridiculous, predictable, not scary at all, not sort of romantic. It's nothing. All that music and the sound, that controls your emotions. And you turn that off and it's like watching a totally different uh, experience. And a lot of time during that movie, it's just so predictable, again, when they manage to survive this terrible crash on some asteroid somewhere, it will wipe out anybody. But then the hero survived. And I could notice the people sitting next to me, they were so relieved and happy. The hero survived this incredibly brutal crash of a spacecraft. And then when he appeared, he just had a hand, just lifted himself up. And I couldn't help but bursting out laughing uncontrollably because his hair was still perfect. <laughs> there, was, there was no signs of soot or sweat on his face at all. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. And I was laughing and people next to me thought I was mad. And I thought, no, you're the guys who are mad. You've been controlled by all that music and expectation and stuff. But anyway, you know more 
and understand more when there's silence. You're not controlled so much by the noises of this world. And that's one of the reasons, as a monk, you're not silent because because you've been trained to be silent. You become silent because you see the great benefit of silence, the great beauty of silence. And that's why if you manage to keep that silence for a few days, you don't want to speak. You don't want to say anything. You don't want noise. Noise is incredibly disturbing. Silence is so rare. You know that years ago, in airports, they started to have these prayer rooms, meditation rooms. And I thought, what a wonderful thing to have. I can get there early in the airport and just meditate before you have to board the aircraft. And I've been in a couple of those meditation rooms. You sit there and you're just getting peaceful. If anybody sees any suspicious behaviour, please report it straight away. We're now paging passenger at Brown. Please come quickly, your plane is about to leave, or whatever it was. There were so many announcements, it wasn't quiet at all. It's so hard to find silence in this world. One thing about Australia, it's so big, there's so many quiet places you can go to. It's really hard to find a quiet place in Singapore. I think the only silent place, if I was looking for a silent place in Singapore, I would look for a cemetery. No one ever goes there. That's what Ajahn Chah taught me. He said in Thailand, when you were sort of walking uh, on this uh, Tudanga, please, if you want some peace and quiet, go to the nearest charnel ground. Because the Thai people are so afraid of ghosts that they won't go there at all. And you can go there. If any ghost comes, the conversation won't last very long because I couldn't understand Thai at that time. So if the ghost said something in Thai, I wouldn't understand what the heck they were talking about. Same in Singapore. What language do the Singapore ghosts speak? (laughs) English, Chinese. English, Chinese, you reckon? But anyway, they're going to leave you alone. They've got no business with you, so it's nice and quiet. But what I'm saying is it's so hard to find a quiet place in this world. But you come here to Jhana Grove. It's not on a flight path. Any aircraft you hear overhead, if you do hear any aircraft, it's all sort of private craft or people who are looking if there's any bushfires or something. And any sort of traffic... He's going to the prison just to change the shifts, but it's, it's not a busy road. And all the animals in the forest here in Australia are quiet. Here, a couple of shikadas outside, not much. It's one of the most peaceful and quiet places in the world, the forests of Australia. So please, don't disturb that peace. See how quiet your mouth can become, and then how quiet your mind becomes. It's kind of you resonate with that stillness and peace. Once, many years ago, I decided to go and visit my family in UK. And I visited that family in the UK for Christmas time. And I've also stayed at one of the monasteries there. Because I was a visitor, visiting monk, I had no duties. So in the morning, I decided to go for a walk. The other monk said, no, you can't go for a walk today. I said, why not? Because the previous night it had snowed heavily. 
and it was really, really cold outside when I was 16 or something. But we had enough insulation. I borrowed some boots and some jumpers and hats and stuff. And I went out to walk in the snow in the early morning. It was one of the most wonderful exercises I've ever done. And the reason was because as soon as I went out of the warm monastery compound into the forest, no other being was there. There were no aircraft in the sky or the airports were closed down, it's too heavy snow. No cars were on the road. No animals were out in the forest, they were all hibernating, as were most sensible human beings. It's only mad monks and Englishmen, and I was both of those, went out in the cold snow fields in that morning. But it was an unforgettable experience, that's why I often repeat it. I just was walking in the snow. And when I stopped, stopped walking, it's like the whole universe stopped. You couldn't hear anything. No birds, no humans, no cars, no traffic, no noise at all. There was no wind, so nothing rustled. And when I stopped, it's like the whole world stopped with me. That was beautiful. Like a sunset. This was like a sound had set and stopped for a while. And a few other times you experience that silence in a place like here or in caves. I remember going to one deep cave over in the uh, middle of Thailand. And as soon as you got to the end of that cave, you sat down, you couldn't hear anything. That too was totally silent. There were no bats in there, no other animals, no people. And when that was silent, the beauty of it. Have you ever been caught by lovely music? I remember just one occasion, just when I was a student at Cambridge, there were some amazing uh, recitals. Sometimes just walking past a room and you hear these incredible uh, quartets. And I couldn't go further. I had to stop and listen to it because it was too beautiful. That was when I was a layperson. Once you were a monk, sometimes you have a moment of silence. You come across a place which is silent. And it makes your mind stop. Your mind becomes still as well. Hopefully you can feel that in this compound called jhana growth. Especially when people aren't messing around preparing food in the kitchen. When they're just respectful of the silence here. And that's when one starts to almost like worship silence. Don't disturb the silence. And it's also where Please excuse me for always repeating this same story, but I haven't found a better one yet. And that's of Lao Tzu, who was, used to go walking in the evening with one student. But there was a golden rule. The student was not allowed to say anything. <coughs> Had to keep noble silence. <coughs> and on this occasion... They came to a ridge in the mountains at sunset and the sunset was absolutely gorgeous. And that's when the student blurted out, wow, what a beautiful sunset. It was gorgeous. But the master turned around, went back to the monastery. When he got back, he told everybody that young man was never allowed to go on a walk with him ever again. He broke the noble silence. And that was how important the silence was to Lao Tzu. And when they asked why, why is it so severe? It was a gorgeous sunset. What's wrong with saying what a gorgeous sunset? 
And that was when the Master Lao Tzu replied. When he said, what a beautiful sunset, he was not watching the sunset anymore. He was watching the words. The words, the description, is so much different than the experience. I love that anecdote because it shows if you respect truth, Dhamma, if you want to see the Dhamma, stop describing it. Stop talking about it. Experience it. That's where you go to a deeper truth, not what you've learned or what you've been conditioned with, to a truth which arises in silence. That's why the silence is so important. And that's why, honestly, I talk a lot because you make me. But I'm being honest with you, I love the silence. And sometimes people think this is weird, but years ago I had the opportunity, I talk a lot about this now, to do a six-month silent retreat by myself. I never saw another human being for six months, let alone having the opportunity to talk to them. Just over in Bodhinyana Monastery. The other monks were really interested. Lay people too. Is he going to go mad? And I think they were disappointed that I wasn't crazy when I came out. And that was one of the most beautiful times. You didn't need to talk to anybody. And because the thinking, which is always associated with talking, was stopped, the mind went very silent. You get some nice meditation that way. It's so much joy and happiness and depth of your perceptions comes up when you don't need to describe it. Sometimes I wonder, why do people think so much? I think the answer is because when you think and judge and try and predict, you get much more sense of control of the world. Much of that thinking comes from your sense of fear. You have a self and think you're going to lose something, so you start thinking about things. It's great when you're silent, peaceful. You don't have to talk to people. You're not being antisocial. If you pass each other just on the path, or you sit opposite each other, you know, when you're having breakfast or lunch, you can always smile at each other. A silent smile is often all you need to show your compassion to each other. But the talking, that disturbs the silence, not just for you, but for them and for everybody in the vicinity who hears you. What a beautiful place this is. Because silence is encouraged and valued. Silence is golden. And the price of gold has gone up. <laughs> it's the last retreat. But from that silence, you find it's so easy to meditate. When you are silent and you start meditating, first of all, people tend to get sloth and torpor. They start to fall asleep. That's natural. That's one of the reasons why I said, make sure you have enough sleep. Too much, you know what's too much, too little doesn't mean you're being smart, you're actually being stupid. You're not resting your body enough. And for those of you who haven't heard this story, 
there was a story from the Buddha's suttas of one of the Buddha's uh, closest disciples, Venerable Ananda. I usually tell this story towards the end of the retreat, but I think I should always tell it at the beginning. It's much more helpful. Venerable Ananda was close to the Buddha. He was his personal attendant for about 25 years before the Buddha passed away. And still, when the Buddha passed away, his close disciple Ananda still was not enlightened. You can imagine what he felt all those years looking after Ananda, doing all these duties, and still hadn't penetrated to full enlightenment. To make it even worse, all of that Sangha decided after the Buddha passed away, they should have some big meeting. Just like the Global Conference of Buddhism, which is happening in Singapore in a, in a few, six weeks' time. I'm just doing a plug for it. <laughs> so anyway, on this meeting, it wasn't sort of uh, discussing uh, all sorts of topics. It was trying to collect all the teachings of the Buddha together, all the Vinaya and all the suttas together, so you know, they could remember them all for eternity, or at least for a for long, 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 long time. So Ananda had heard a lot and remembered everything so well. So he was invited, together with 499 others, who were all fully enlightened. 499 perfectly enlightened beings, plus one who wasn't. And he can imagine what he felt like the night before. Tomorrow, he had to go to this meeting, he gets so embarrassed. Everyone else is enlightened except for him. So when he decided to do what you would do, go for broke. Let's give everything you can to become enlightened. He stayed up all night meditating and meditating and meditating and meditating. And if you haven't heard the story, what happened? Nothing. When the sun rose, he was still as unenlightened as he was before. So what did he do? We thought, the meeting's not for another hour yet or so. I'll go and take a nap. So Ananda went to his room and he lay down and just before his head hit the pillow he became another enlightened being. And to this day I call that the Ananda method of enlightenment. Go back to your room and take a rest. The more times you do it, the more chances. It's probability theory. <laughs> but why did that happen? Okay, I've got another five minutes. To understand why it happens, it's one of my stories of the, of the donkey and the durian. I usually call it donkey and carrot, but you're mostly Singaporeans. Do you like durian? I don't think you can get anything on this retreat which is durian, simply because there was an experience in um, Sydney University, was it, was it Melbourne? In one of the university buildings that someone complained about a very, very bad smell and they evacuated all the buildings. They thought it was a a chemical attack. They did. And all these and the hazmat people came along in incredible uniforms and just had to go inside to check where's the source of this chemical attack coming from. And eventually they found it in somebody's locker, I think it was one of the Malaysians. They left some durian in there. <laughs> and the smell of the durian had gone off a bit. 
The people thought it was a chemical attack by some terrorist group and they closed down the university for an afternoon. So we don't want Jana Grove to be closed down, do we? <laughs> but anyway, the Jurian and the donkey <laughs> similarly, how do you get a stubborn donkey to go anywhere? They have a saying like that. I remember that as a kid in the UK, as stubborn as a donkey. Because you can hit a donkey, the donkey won't move. So you don't use a stick ever to hit the donkey. Instead, you tie the stick to the donkey's neck. So the front of the stick is two foot in front of the donkey's mouth or head. On the end of the stick, you put a string. On the end of the string, you put a durian. Now, that would not work if that was an English donkey. <laughs> but a Singaporean donkey, that would probably work straight away. The donkey sees a durian, two foot in front of its mouth. What would the donkey do? It moved towards the durian. But as it goes towards the durian, you can see it, it's almost in reach. As it moves towards the durian to eat it, the durian also moves, because the donkey moves, the stick moves, the string moves, the, don the durian moves. Which means the donkey can never catch that durian. And that's like you trying to find peace in this world, trying to find happiness trying to find insights, enlightenment. Have you ever had experiences right in front of you? Almost there, it's easy. You go towards it, it moves away from you. What's the solution? So easy. That donkey runs like hell after that Julian. No matter how fast it runs, it's always two foot or so in front of its mouth. But then, then, the Buddhist donkey knows how to stop. And as soon as, as, soon as the Buddhist donkey stops, let's go, renounces, sits still, doesn't do anything, relaxes to the max, opens the door of your heart. That's always like an inaction. As soon as the donkey stops, what happens to the during? It goes further away. That's why some people, when they try this meditation method, it doesn't work, it gets worse. Be patient. Wait a bit longer. Don't expect anything. See what happens. Let it be. So what happens is the Julian goes further away than it's ever been before. Four foot in front of the donkey's mouth. But then, if the donkey waits long enough, the Julian starts swinging back again towards the donkey. And soon that Julian is... donkey doesn't do anything, it just waits. And soon that Julian is two foot in front of the donkey's mouth coming at full speed towards the donkey's mouth. And there's one last instruction the donkey has to remember. It's not just mindfulness, it's kindfulness. As the durian comes closer, have you ever seen how big the teeth are in a donkey's mouth? <laughs> the last moment, just as the donkey's swinging closer and closer to the donkey's teeth, the donkey has to remember Kindness. Durian, the door of my mouth is open to you. <laughs> Come in. That's how donkeys catch durians. That's how Ananda became enlightened. Be meditating, 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 then let go. And all those insights came straight to Ananda. Now, what happened next was also fascinating. How could you ever prove to anybody that now you were enlightened? How can you let other people know you're greater? So what Ananda did, 
he deliberately arrived late for the meeting. So the other monks, the 499 arahats, had locked the door. So Ananda came in through the keyhole, make an entrance. <laughs> so if anybody here wants to tell me their great attainments, we'll lock the door and you can come in <laughs> I don't know, through one of the vents or something. <laughs> kind of cool, isn't it? So if, for any of you come in and say, Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahm, is this fourth jhana? Is this stream winning? I'll say, please come in through the vent. <laughs> that will convince me. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, that's just a little bit of introduction to this retreat. I haven't told much, a little bit of how to let go, but the most important thing about the beginning of this retreat is to please practice kindfulness and silence. Silence is the greatest gift you can give to others and to yourself. And the kindness is realizing that it's all about stillness, relaxing, being, pe being peaceful. You, when you feel that peacefulness start to arise, you know you're on the path, going closer and closer. You don't need to run anymore. Just keep still. Watch all these amazing things come to you. Okay. Thank you for listening. There's more coming tomorrow. Maybe. Who knows? See what happens. But now this evening, after the briefing, please have a good night's sleep. That's pretty weak, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, how many times you've been here? You know how to do the three sadhus. Let's do it properly. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> it brings more happiness and more joy, and you don't say much, hopefully, so at least you can do the three sardas full on at the end of talks and stuff. <laughs>